0: Hello, this is the Soul Anchor Podcast, and I am your host, Vidal Moreno. In the Soul Anchor Podcast, we seek to anchor our faith in the truths of the Bible while we sail across the sea seeking adventures where they can be found. As we have moved through our adventure this past year, I hope you can appreciate all the connection points that have brought us from the resurrection of Christ to this moment in human history. There have been many turning points, as Mark Knoll describes in his book by the same name. There have also been important men and women around which those turning points revolved. In every great story, there are villains and there are heroes. It is easy to focus on the heroes. They are the people we want to be like. The villains, on the other hand, are a little hard to take. For the past few hundred years, there really have not been any villains per se, like there were when the church was young and under a lot of persecution from secular sources. The conflict waged between people in the last 1500 years have been waged by people claiming to be followers of Christ. Now, whether they really are committed disciples of Christ is not for us to say. Some of their actions spoke louder than their words. But in the late 18th In the early 19th centuries, things began to change. A purely secular mindset began to emerge that would challenge the Christian worldview that had dominated the past 1500 years. Men whose mindsets were diametrically opposed to Christianity began to write and speak and find sanctuaries in academia. These men will influence our lives today almost as much as the men who would dig their heels in the sand and stand against them in defense of the cross of Christ. To understand our times, we must understand these men and what they taught. So, the next two podcasts will be committed to better understanding the minds that changed the Western world. This week, we will focus on the humanists that wrote and taught about a world absent of Christianity. Next week, we will focus on the liberal theologians who, although claiming to be Christians, used the worldview of these secular humanists to attack Christian orthodoxy, an attack that continues today in the halls of the great seminaries of the Western world. First up, Charles Darwin. Charles Robert Darwin was a British naturalist and biologist known for his theory of evolution and his understanding of the process of natural selection. In October of 1825, at the age of 16, Darwin enrolled at the University of Edinburgh along with his brother Erasmus. Darwin grew up Unitarian but attended an Anglican school. By the way, We will talk about Unitarians next podcast. Suffice it to say, he was not brought up in Orthodox Christianity. With the aim of becoming a clergyman, he went to the University of Cambridge, which included studies of Anglican theology. While at Cambridge, he took great interest in natural history and became filled with zeal for science. This science was based on the natural theology of William Paley, who taught that all creation had the fingerprint of a divine designer and that adaptations that we see in living organisms were evidence of God acting through laws of nature. After Darwin graduated from Cambridge, his botany professor recommended him for a naturalist position aboard the HMS Beagle. Charles embarked on a five-year voyage around the world, during which time his studies of various plants and animals led him to formulate his theories. On the voyage of the Beagle, he tried to retain his Christian training and looked for quote-unquote centers of creation to explain distribution. But towards the end of the voyage, Darwin began to doubt that species were fixed. You see, he had been taught that God had created every specific species. He could not reconcile this with what he was learning through his observations. By this time, he was becoming critical of the Bible as history and wondered why all religions should not be equally valid. Following his return in October of 1836, he developed his novel ideas of geology while speculating about how one species can become another species. Following Darwin's marriage to Emma Wedgwood in January of 1839, he continued to ponder the role of religion in his life. Emma and her family were committed Unitarians, and so Charles could not escape entirely into his world of science. Observing a world full of violence and evil, Darwin struggled to believe that a good god would be responsible for condoning of such things. To Darwin, natural selection removed the need for design and he could not see the work of an omnipotent deity in all the pain and suffering that he witnessed in the natural world. Darwin came to think of religion as a tribal survival strategy. Darwin still believed that God was the ultimate lawgiver, and later recollected that at the time he was convinced of the existence of God as a first cause and deserved to be called a theist. But even this view fluctuated, and he continued to explore his doubts without forming fixed opinions on certain religious matters. Darwin continued to play a leading part in the parish work of the local church, but from around 1849, he stopped attending church with his family. Though reticent about his religious views, in 1879, he responded that he had never been an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of a god, and that generally, quote, an agnostic would be more correct description of my state of mind, unquote. He went as far as saying that, quote, science has nothing to do with Christ except in so far as the habit of scientific research makes a man cautious In admitting evidence. For myself, I do not believe that there has ever been any revelation. As for a future life, every man must judge for himself between conflicting, vague probabilities. In 1859, he published his landmark book, On the Origin of Species. Darwin's theory of evolution and the process of natural selection later became known as Darwinism. Social Darwinism is a collection of ideas that emerged in the late 1800s that adopted Darwin's theory of evolution to explain social and economic issues. Darwin himself rarely commented on any connections between his theories and human society. But while attempting to explain his ideas to the public... Darwin borrowed widely understood concepts such as survival of the fittest from sociologist Herbert Spencer. Over time, as the Industrial Revolution and the laissez-faire capitalism swept across the world, social Darwinism has been used as a justification for imperialism, labor abuses, poverty, racism, eugenics, and social inequality. Following a lifetime of devout research, Charles Darwin died at his family home, Downhouse, in London in April nineteenth, 1882. He was buried at Westminster Abbey. Darwin may not have wanted to apply his theory to anthropology, but that did not prevent those that came after him from doing just that. Have you heard of Edward Tyler? Probably not, but his influence on the Western world is undeniable. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Tyler was born in 1832 in London and was the son of a family of wealthy Quakers. He was educated at a prestigious school and attended college, but due to the death of his parents during his early adulthood, he never gained a university degree. After his parents died, he prepared to help manage the family business, but had to set this plan aside when he developed symptoms consistent with the onset of tuberculosis at age 23. Following advice to spend time in warmer climates, Tyler left England in 1855 and moved to Mexico. The experience proved to be life-changing, sparking his lifelong interest in studying unfamiliar cultures. During his travels, Tyler met Henry Christie, a fellow Quaker, ethnologist, and archaeologist. Tyler's association with Christie greatly stimulated his awakening interest in anthropology and helped broaden his inquiries to include prehistoric studies. Tyler's first publication was a result of his 1856 trip to Mexico with Christie. His notes on the beliefs and practices of the people he encountered were the basis of this work published in 1861 after his return to England. Tyler continued to study the customs and beliefs of tribal communities, both existing and prehistoric, which were based on archaeological finds. He published his second work, Researches into the Early History of Mankind and the Development of Civilization in 1865. Following this came his most influential work, Primitive Culture, in 1871. In the book, Tyler explained his conclusion that our ancestors imagined that they had supernatural souls as they pondered their two basic problems. Number one, their physical lives, which revolved around sleep, ecstasy, illness, and death. And number two, the dreams and visions that they experienced. Their idea of having soul was experienced whenever they saw their own reflection in water or the shadows they cast. At this point, it dawned on early man that what they observed in their environments, such as animals, trees, rivers, mountains, and sky, even the forces of nature, were also endowed with a soul. Thus, Spiritism, or animism, was born as the first religion. Once classes began to exert themselves among early human society, early man began to create aristocracies of gods as well. We now had the high gods and the low gods, and religion had evolved into polytheism. When the human aristocrats began choosing rulers from among themselves, monotheism resulted. The belief of the god of gods was created. So monotheism was the pinnacle of the religious evolutionary process. Tyler's work introduced three concepts that would influence society. First of all, there was no longer anything mysterious about religion. Religion had a natural origin and subsequent evolutionary development that science could explain. Secondly, since monotheism marked the final stage in religion's evolution, religion had now reached the end of a dead-end street. Thirdly, further developments in human society were already dictating that the next step for a people who wanted to stay on the crest of evolution's wave, was abandon religion with its now defunct God, gods, or spirits. Tyler's work took the academic world by storm. For a time, it was considered the real story of religion until anthropologists around the world started taking a very hard look at the data that they were able to collect from their own research and from missionary accounts. Tyler's own favorite student, Andrew Lang, was instrumental in his mentor's theories' downfall. What Lang found was that the direct evidence Led him to come to the conclusion that monotheism seemed to be the most primitive religion. Wherever Lang looked, he found the idea of sky god was virtually universal. Lang's work was met with almost universal silence. In the early years, he was simply ignored. But as a new generation of anthropologists emerged, who were not as enthralled with Tyler, Lang's work began to be acknowledged. By the early 20th century, Tyler's theory was no longer believed to be true. But here was the problem. No one told the political theorists and the theologians who desired to apply Darwin's theories to the humanities. After the Berlin Wall fell and academics on both sides of the walls began to mingle freely, Western anthropologists were shocked to find out that Soviet anthropologists had never heard of Andrew Lang. They were still teaching Tyler's ideas in Soviet universities. Which brings us to Karl Marx, who will take Tyler's theory to the next stage. So, at this time when Tyler's work was being hailed in academia, Karl Marx began exploring socio-political theories at his university. He became a journalist, and his socialist writings would get him expelled from Germany and France. In 1848, he published the Communist Manifesto with Friedrich Engels and was exiled in London, where he wrote the first volume of Das Kapital and lived the remainder of his life. Karl Marx was one of nine children born to Heinrich and Henrietta Marx in Trier, Prussia, which is a part of modern-day Germany. His father was a successful lawyer who revered Kant and Voltaire and was a passionate activist for Prussian reform. Although both parents were Jewish and had rabbinical ancestry, Carl's father converted to Christianity in 1816 at the age of 35. This was likely a professional concession in response to an 1815 law banning Jews from high society. He was baptized a Lutheran rather than a Catholic, which was the predominant faith in Trier, because he, quote, equated Protestantism with intellectual freedom, unquote. When he was six, Carl was baptized, along with the other children. In 1835, Marx began studying in the University of Berlin. There he studied law and philosophy and was introduced to the philosophy of G.W.F. Hegel, who had been a professor at Berlin until his death in 1831. Marx was not initially enamored with Hegel, but soon became involved with the Young Hegelians, a radical group of students including Bruno Bauer and Ludwig Feuerbach, who criticized the political and religious establishments of the day. In 1836, he was becoming more politically zealous. He received his doctorate from the University of Jena in 1841, but his radical politics prevented him from finding a teaching position. He began to work as a journalist, and in 1842, he became the editor of, of a liberal newspaper in Cologne. Just one year later, the government ordered the newspapers shut down. Paris was the political heart of Europe in 1843. There, Marx met Friedrich Engels, who would become his collaborator and lifelong friend. The result of Marx and Engels' first collaboration was published in 1845 as The Holy Family. Later that year, Marx moved to Belgium after being expelled from France while writing for another radical newspaper, which had strong ties to an organization that would later become the Communist League. In Brussels, Marx was introduced to socialism by Moses Hess and finally broke off from the philosophy of the young Hegelians completely. At the beginning of 1846, Marx founded a Communist Correspondence Committee in an attempt to link socialists from around Europe. Inspired by his ideas, socialists in England held a conference and formed the Communist League. And in 1847, at the Central Committee meeting in London, the organization asked Marx and Engel to write the Manifesto of the Communist Party. The Communist Manifesto, as this work is commonly known, was published in 1848, and shortly after, in 1849, Marx was expelled from Belgium. He went to France, anticipating a socialist revolution, but was deported from there as well. Prussia refused to renaturalize him, so Marx moved to London. Although Britain denied him citizenship, he remained in London until his death. In London, he continued to work as a journalist, including a 10-year stint as a correspondent for the New York Daily Tribune from 1852 to 1862, but he never earned a living wage and was largely supported by angles. Marx became increasingly focused on capitalism and economic theory, and in 1867, he published the first volume of Das Kapital. The rest of his life was spent writing and revising manuscripts for additional volumes, which he did not complete. The remaining two volumes were assembled and published posthumously by Engels. Marx died of pleurisy in London on March 14, 1883. Both Marx and Engels, based on Tyler's work, felt that religion had to be suppressed and, if possible, annihilated From the earth. Lenin, who took their work to Russia, realized that religious people were his greatest threat and had this to say about religion. Our party program is in its entirety built upon a scientific, hence materialistic worldview. Our program contains the unveiling of the historical and scientific explanation of the origin of religious mystery. Thus, Our program necessarily contains the propaganda of atheism. By the time Marx and Engel died, Tyler's work had not yet been debunked, but Lenin could not use the same excuse. Lenin chose to base the Russian communism on Tyler's work. But guess what? When the Iron Curtain came down 80 years later, the Christian church was alive and well. What Lenin could not or would not take into consideration was the remarkable ability of Christian people to maintain and even disseminate their faith in spite of the worst that the communists could do. Finally, Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche was born on October 15th, 1844 in Prussia. His father, Karl Ludwig Nietzsche, was a Lutheran preacher. He died when Nietzsche was four years old. Nietzsche and his younger sister Elizabeth were raised by their mother. Nietzsche attended a private preparatory school and then received a classical education at a prestigious Prussian school. After graduating in 1864, he attended the University of Leipzig, where he studied philology, which is a combination of literature, linguistics, and history. In 1869, Nietzsche took a position as professor of classical philology at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Suffering from a nervous disorder, he resigned from his post at Basel in 1879. For most of the following decade, Nietzsche lived in seclusion, moving from Switzerland to France to Italy. As fate would have it, this was also a highly productive period for him as a thinker and a writer. In the 1880s, Nietzsche developed the central point of his philosophy. One of these was his famous statement that God is dead. A rejection of Christianity as a meaningful force in a contemporary life. Others were his endorsement of self-perfection through creative drive and a will to power. And his concept of a superman. Superman was an individual who strives to exist beyond conventional categories of good and evil, master and slave. Nietzsche's state of mental incapacitation Nietzsche suffered a collapse in eighteen eighty nine while living in Turin, Italy. The last decade of his life was spent in a state of mental incapacitation. The reason for his insanity is still unknown, although historians have attributed it to a cause as varied as syphilis, an inherited brain disease, a tumor, or the overuse of sedative drugs. He died in Weimar in August twenty-fifth, 1900. Nietzsche is regarded as a major influence on 20th century philosophy, theology, and art. His ideas on individuality, morality, and the meaning of existence contributed to the thinking of the 19th and 20th century and psychiatrist Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud, and on writers such as Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, Thomas Mann, and Hermann Hess. Less beneficially, certain aspects of Nietzsche's work were used by the Nazi party of the 1930s and 40s as justification for its activities. So, needless to say... The Vatican is not going to canonize any of these individuals in the years to come. How will these men influence Christian history? They will influence the liberal theologians of the 19th century, which of course will influence the trajectory that Christian history will take in the 20th century. Next week on the Soul Anchor Podcast, we will study these liberal theologians. If you're enjoying the Soul Anchor Podcast and would like to automatically receive the podcast every time I upload an episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Soul Anchor Podcast is also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The Soul Anchor Podcast Facebook page has the complete transcript of this episode. Like the page so that you can receive notifications when I post information about these episodes. I invite all my listeners to message me on Facebook or email me at vidmore at yahoo.com. I would love to hear from you. I get very little feedback and I would love to get some feedback, positive or negative. Getting back to the podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell others about it and leave a five-star review because that will allow the podcast to get more recognition in the community. Till we meet again. 18- plus.